Millennials are ruining the world An exennial perspective Hey everyone, welcome back to Millennials are Ruining the World Question mark, an exennial perspective Real conversations bridging the gap between generations X and Y I'm not woke, but I'm awake My guest today is a playwright, a screenwriter, and a director he works for a bank and can play the violin. He has written graphic novels, been on Comic-Con panels, and is a male model for naughty Jewish boys and their calendars. Please welcome Lenny Schwartz. How's it going? Hey, not bad, Seth. How are you doing this evening? I'm good. I'm great. I, Comic-Con, how was that? That's very exciting. Um, I'm doing a panel for my one of my... Uh, Steve Ditko, I wrote a play about Steve Ditko, and um, we just did a panel in San Diego Comic-Con, and now we're doing one at New York Comic-Con, the same panel with different family members, but I'll be on the panel too. And um, with that, um, it's going to be basically about Steve Ditko's life, and uh, he's the co-creator of Spider-Man, the creator of Doctor Strange, um, and uh, you know other many, many comic book characters that are all over the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but... The um the Steve Ditko one um yeah this is one this one like I said we'll be going we're we're doing this with the family I'm actually also pr uh, producing the play uh in October I'm directing two plays right now and uh, the second play uh comes up in uh, in October October first at uh, DittkoCon in Steve Ditko's hometown of Johnstown Pen Johnstown Pennsylvania so it'll be it's gonna it's a lot of things going on right now but I'm somehow managing and. Uh, I enjoy my time off, basically. And <laughs> so. uh, you're saying he's a nice guy. He's not a giant dicko. Oh, Steve, Steve Dicko is actually no longer with us. Um, his so the story goes. See, I, I've actually never met Steve Dicko. Um, he passed away in 2018, but he was known in the comic book circles. He created, um, you know, uh, Spider Man, uh, you know, Doctor Strange, and all these other characters, Squirrel Girl, and um. What ended up happening was, uh, you know, he was a, he was a recluse. Nobody, you know, there were people who went through his doorstep. He, he refused interviews. He didn't really want that that fame. And um, I, I, I would said, take you know, it from him if he didn't want it. He could have right, gifted right. it to me. He's exactly. like what, he's like Salinger who just didn't but, want yep. it. Well, he you know, he lived in New York City and nobody knew anything. There were people he he worked with who never knew for years. I never knew if he had a family. He just was all about the work. He loved to work. He loved the work he did. But, you know, it's it was it was one of those things where, you know, nobody can know who he knew who he was. And what ended up happening was that uh, I wrote the play. He had passed. Uh, we put the play up and I never thought that, you know, you know, you never think these things are going to go anywhere. You, you kind of throw things out into the world, see what happens. Yeah. And I, um, I do a lot of that. Oh, you do. And, and sometimes things just catch or sometimes, you know, they just they just go where they go. And um, this one still going on. This was 2018. You know, 2016, I started writing the show. 2018, we did put the first show up. Two weeks before the first show, out of nowhere, on, on, on Facebook of all places, um, a gentleman named Mark Dicko reached out to me. And I said, who the heck is Mark Dicko? And I'm like, right. oh, you know, who's this guy, right? And it seemed, you know, and so he said, well, I'm Steve Dicko's nephew. He was Steve Dicko's nephew. He's actually become a good friend. Um, he said, he said, can I see your script? So I showed him the script. And he says, I have some, some 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 suggestions. And I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, Steve would Steve would never have eaten this. He would eat crepes. He would do this. He was going through all these things. And he says, you mind if I give you some notes? Everything he's giving me are details about Steve Ditko's life that nobody knows about. And I'm like, this is amazing. So I start running into the script. And I said, yeah, this is great. Give me everything you want. I, I, I take apart the script as much as you want. And uh, he just he just just giving me details and you know thoughts and things that Steve would say, Steve wouldn't say. It was one of the coolest things because you know you don't get that access cut again we did the play again in 2019 in new york and we did it in rhode island again and then the pandemic happened and i'm like okay that was a great experience and i had two years of a play you know i kind of got some notice and stuff it was good it was cool cut to 2021 and uh you know the pandemic's kind of dying down and they had a they had a heroes con a heroes like hometown heroes in um johnstown pennsylvania for steve ditko Ooh. And I'm like, so they said, we're going to put your play up. Would you want to come? Sure. Why not? I'm going to come. Why not? Right. I drive, I'm going to see his hometown. This is great. I go down there and we went to this, this private ceremony and this private thing that they were doing. They were doing this art gallery of, of Steve Ditko down there. And literally 
I go in there, turn the corner, and I'm invited to it's like invited to a bar mitzvah or a wedding. I, it's like I'm crashing a bar mitzvah or a wedding because as far as the eye can see, our dick goes everywhere. There's you know, there's all these sorts of dick I never would have imagined. It literally was like, you know, it was literally like dick goes at every turn. It was and all of his relatives were there. Right. More and dick goes than in an episode in an issue of Playgirl. But I have no idea, my friend. It was like dicko, it was dicko mania. Dicko and, fest. Uh, it was it was so cool. Like I mean, it was so cool. It was such, such an opportunity. Sounds so like a sausage set. party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> they put the they put the uh, they put the play up, and I like what they did. You know, it's just not my version of things, but um, you know what it's like. So I'm like, I, and I appreciate they took the script in a different direction. But I said, God, I really wish I could have directed this. You know, cut to last year, I'm doing the Batman play, and they're like, Hey, do you want to come down and do a play down here? So I brought the Batman play to Steve Ditko's hometown. It was cool. It was great. It was awesome. But then they're like, we might do DickoCon again. I'm like, if you do, but let me put the play on one more time because I have this idea of what I want to do with it. And they're like, we'd love that. You know, why not? So now I'm part of DickoCon 2023. It's literally my seventh year of being in this Ditko show, you know, getting this thing going together. We're doing the original cast as much as we can get. And we're just doing it. It's so weird to me that we're doing this still. I just, it's been so lovely in so many ways that I wasn't expecting, but you know, it's 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 just one of those things. You never know what's going to hit on people and what they might like. Right, so, and, and the Batman play you're talking about is The Rise of the Bat, which is about Bill Finger, which right. I know, but the listeners might not know. So yeah, you're, like, you're basically either writing about geckos or fingers. Right, right. It's so weird. Like Batman, bats are uh, spiders, you know? it's like. Have you ever fingered a gecko? I've never, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> no, 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 no. They would not, they would not appreciate that. <laughs> um but you know, it's 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 cool. It's so cool to, you know, it's so cool when you do these things that you're just writing in your house, doing these things, or jotting down notes that you that that these stories kind of take take place to take you place that you never thought you'd be taken to. Um, it's just weird. It's a weird. It's a weird world that I completely love. And I love to write. I love to create. So, well, you know, that's, that's amazing. That's that's yeah. great. So we haven't even started our podcast, and we're already off and running. Uh, but I yeah. should get to our first question now that it's been sure. 10 minutes. Uh, how did we meet, <laughs> Lenny? That's the question I ask everyone. And apparently you remember how we met. I, yep. I don't remember how we met. You don't. That's amazing. Well, um, you solicited me. It was so weird. Anyway, I'm kidding. No, it's not it. I did? Yes, on the corner. <laughs> I was worried. I was like, I'm like, look, I'm a playwright. You're like, no, here's here's $50. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it was $100. Um, no, the... Um, what, it was only yeah yeah it was like a fifteen dollar bill hanging it there You're like here you go um no what what it was was two thousand fourteen was when I met you I remember this uh, specifically I was at it was at Mike it was Mike Roderick and and Nora's um just after they were married at their apartment I think it was on Fifty Third Street I think a Forty Ninth Street Forty Ninth Street that's what it was and it was it was the one near the, the shelter and it was all the way you know I like to just kind of tucked away in the yeah back between tenth and eleventh I know exactly right, right. where. The, I was there. Yep. They used to have New Year's Eve parties before they had kids. Right, 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 right. And this was actually the summer, and he had a little get-together. And I went down with my friend John and my friend Duncan, and there you were. And uh, my daughter was there, and you just, we just talked a little bit. So well, he said, well, be my Facebook friend. And then what, and every it was so weird because we just met that one time. And then uh, I think we just started on Facebook. We're just kind of going about movies and stuff like that. Yeah, you always post about movies. And I'm always like, oh, I watch all this. And I was like, who is this guy? When did I meet him? But when I I saw your Bill Finger play, I was like, oh, yeah, I saw Michael Roderick there. And I was like, I must have met him through Michael Roderick. And so I'm glad. So that is confirmed. Yeah, so that's confirmed. I knew I've known Mike for what now? 25? 26 years maybe something you know i need to have mike on my podcast i'm surprised i didn't haven't had him but next season next Next season season. if if you're listening michael you're you're coming on next season he'd be a great person to have on oh he's wonderful he just he's he's a wonderful story wonderful guy i was actually the best man at his wedding actually i don't know if you're at at his wedding i was at the wedding so maybe i saw you there as well it could could be yeah i'm i'm i was his best man it was in the firehouse the fire firehouse yeah yeah, yeah there was the all this. Exam. We could put on the the fireman's hat and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I and yeah, I, I I was yeah. I remember it was it was uh, like two days before, what, three days before Christmas or something like that. I don't remember when it was. Yep. I just know I was there. 
Oh, I remember when it was. I had I had to plan a bachelor Lord party. Lord knows, at least I was there. Yes. Yeah, the, the, I had to plan a bachelor party, the busiest shopping day of the, the year in New York City. So that was pretty fun. That's <laughs> so, cool. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a good time though. We had a we yeah. Had a Michael's really cool great. Day. I met Michael doing a terrible, 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 terrible. Add some terribles for the next hour show, and I that was back when I used to say yes to everything. And yeah. uh, when I was young, and so I musically directed, and it paid terribly. And Michael was, I think he was directing it. And it was just really? a reading at Dixon Place. And it was just, you know, you you bond over trauma. So it was like, right. this is absolutely the worst thing I've ever been a part of. But then I made a lifelong friend who now I have two lifelong friends. Well, yeah, actually, I think yeah, I've met good. a lot of people through Michael Roderick, so... Yeah, no, he's great. I mean, like he's good for that. He's he's always about connecting people. But I, yeah, he was he was our connection actually. And uh, yeah, I remember. I think we shared an elevator ride down. It was really brief and quick. But I mean, it was still you know. Um, I remember that. And then we just started talking. And like you, I but I I think I was always trying to get you to come to a show at some point. But you always were so busy because you had things. You always have things going on. But um, you know, and then and then it just kind of. I think things. I think that's how things spiral basically, and how they. It kind of, you know, I, I like to think if you start creating something, you know, you follow it, the path where it leads you. Right. And uh, that's also how you look at writing, too. You always follow the path where it leads you. Well, that's very on topic. <laughs> so we might as well get on topic. Sure, go uh, to it. Our topic today is screenwriting. So, Lenny, what is screenwriting? What is screenwriting? Uh, it's writing for the screen, Seth. No, <laughs> that, that's true. That's no, true. Writing for film. That's an easy answer. Easy answer. <laughs> yeah, my my screenwriting for me though is just another way to tell a story. Um, that's and be without being facetious. Um, you know, without with no facetious answer on that. I it's 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 another another way to tell a story. Either you know you have to decide sometimes whether it's going to be a play, a graphic novel, um, a book. Um, you know, whatever you might want it to be, whatever form the story is going to take shape, you have to figure out how to get that story and why it's important for that medium. I mean, there are things you can do in plays that you can't do in film, obviously. That's true. Um, but um, for screenwriting, for me, it's just, you know, it's something I never thought I would be actively doing. Um, I had a lot of things I never thought I'd be actively doing, one of them being directing. But, um, you know, I never thought I'd be... I, I'd taken screenwriting classes in college. I'd actually worked with um, Richard Price, uh, who written the uh, the Color of Money, the, the the Scorsese movie. He's also written a few other things like Clockers. If you've ever seen the movie Clockers or the book, um, very 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 strong writer. Um, very very good with dialogue. Um, but he, I would write. I had a choice at one time in my when I was in college whether to pursue playwriting, and or pursue screenwriting in film. And playwriting was just more immediate at that time, like doing plays. Right. A play I could write and have, you know, can do tomorrow if I wanted to. Um, you know, real if I really wanted to, I could put it on the stage. It just happens. Film takes more well, that's time. That's a perk of having your own theater company. Right. And, but even so, though, I mean, you look at it this way, and this is, I learned this with film too, even having your own theater company, it doesn't always guarantee that, uh, it doesn't always guarantee, you don't have, I mean, you can, it guarantees that you can do things. The more stuff you have, but even with with the theater company, all you really need is a space, actors, insurance. <laughs> you want to make sure you have insurance, uh, or have a space that wants to give you insurance. But you can put stuff on anywhere, really. I mean, you can literally put a play on like that. You can cast a play with two people and make a story and make it happen. The good news is insurance is not that expensive for this sort of thing. It's not. That's the thing. And that's the thing I always tell people too. I mean, you can get insurance fairly cheaply for any sort of because insurance is a crock of shit. And they yep. charge you all this money and they never have to pay out because they always find a loophole. So it's like, I don't know well, why you even get it. Well, the reason why the reason why you need insurance, and I'll tell you exactly why. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's just in case it's mostly because you want to because first of all, they won't theater spaces, most theater spaces won't rent to you, basically, if you don't have insurance. It's just, you know, most of them won't. I'm Some aware theaters, of that. Yes, that's yeah. very true. Yeah, that that's number one. Number two is that. I mean, they'll find loopholes not to pay you, but there you if 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 you want to talk about liability liability, people will be less apt to sue you if you have insurance. Trust me on that, because they'll be like, "Oh, I'll go through the insurance." And insurance will, if you have good insurance, like decent insurance, 
that I'm very I'm very well versed in insurance, um, then they won't they can't really come at you and they can't take away what you have. Um, that's the only good part about insurance that's that insurance companies have. I mean, they may not pay out, but right. someone comes at you with it was like, oh, I broke my leg. I I I can't I can't have a sex life anymore. It's all set, it's all Seth, it's his fault, you know? And I'm gonna sue him for trauma and do this thing and this and this and this. And you're like, Jesus, I didn't. I didn't do anything to you. You tripped, you know, you fell down the stair, you know I mean? Like one stair, you, you sprained your ankle and now it ruined your life. You know, you could have that, but they will, they can come at you and do all those things, but the insurance company will, will the worst they'll do is raise your premiums. Right. You so know? you're I mean, basically like, paying the insurance company to be a firewall. That's all it is, man. That's, that's, that's. All right. Life You've convinced yeah, I, me. We'll get insurance. We'll get insurance. <laughs> Not for the podcast. Well, I almost fell. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, yeah, you could totally sue me. You're in your own house. Yeah, exactly. Look, it's like spoke, it's Seth's know? fault. He made me do this Zoom. Right. You know, as, you know, it's funny is I, I was with a theater company and they, and they were convincing, they were trying to think, well, why should we get insurance? Why should we get insurance? And somebody was doing a uh, a magic act at one point there or something like that. It was a um one of those mind things they do, whatever it was. And the guy she was walking a woman on stage. Why he ever picked an 80-year-old woman, I do not know. But it says, well, come up on the stage. And she and she just sprained her ankle going on the stage. Or I think it was like, a, a, and she's like, oh, my hip fell out. Literally took them six years to just get this woman off their back. And this was just when the theater opened. Um, and I hate to say it, but people target, you know, they're just like, oh, yeah, you know, I see this is a new space. Well, I can take advantage of this. You know, I'm going to buy right. a ticket or, you know, whatever. I mean, they target. They may not think of it while they're there, and it, you know, or they might, this might accidentally happen. And like all of a sudden, you know, someone comes over and says, hey, you can make more money. And they're I'm like, well, if I can make more money, why not? You know, um, it's it's a it's a under, it's a world. That, I mean, that, you know, we uh, that we live in, unfortunately, where everybody's out to screw everybody over. <laughs> so. That's really a very uh, bleak way to look at the human race. Oh, I think I'm it very, might just very, be America. I'm I'm very bleak. <laughs> but I believe <laughs> that. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, but, screen, but anyway, screenwriting is a thing for me to. Um, to tell another story, to tell a story on screen, something that's lasting, a lasting image that holds on to something, that holds on right. to people can hold on to. That's what it means, means telling a story that lasts. Well, movies and, yeah. are are way more visual uh, right. than theater, and theater is a little bit more talky, and movies yeah. is definitely more showy. And the, mm -hmm. I think the best thing about the film is you hit it, it, it's there forever. You have it. Right. You have it. And that's why I mean, you know, film film is especially with digital being what it is now, it is and anyone and I, I used to think that even like ten years ago, the ability to make a film with with digital coming into effect was still not as doable. Still very still very, you know, you want to make sure things are good, but it's a lot more doable. You could literally take a your phone and make a film now. You know, I mean, literally well, at this you point. You can't take my phone, but maybe your phone is better than mine. It is much better. I can see this. I can see it right through here. <laughs> and I, iPhone, iPhones, and everything else—they really do. Um, they really do make good devices now. Eventually, within ten years, imagine what will be. You know. I mean, in ten years, though, the AIs will have taken over all filmmaking. All right, then I can go on vacation. Fine. We'll, we'll, we'll be like those those people in Wally, and we're just oh like, yeah. Oh wow! Bright! Yay! There's people talking. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, honestly, honestly, and I said this too, I'm all for the writer's strike. I'm all for the actor's strike. I'm, I think it's fantastic. I think it's good. Half the shit I see on TV now, it feels like it was already written by AI. So, I mean, you know, unfortunately true. But you, you turn on Netflix and half the stuff looks like it was written by AI and people being like, oh, this is this is what I like. And you're like, okay, this, this, you know, I wish. If, yeah, I, I worry about the, I, I hope after this writer's strike, we get better material. I really do. And not well, just a couple things a year. I feel like there's an algorithm and they just try to please as many people as possible. So if you're yep. trying to please as many people as possible, you're like, you know, everyone's like fifth thing. And then you have a lot of people who like it, but you don't have anyone yeah. who loves it. At the start of streaming, it was more niche and there was a lot of niche. And then now it's becoming more mainstream and shows that aren't pulling in big ratings like Stranger Things are getting canceled very quickly. Right, right, right. And that's the thing. I think Stranger Things is great. I think it's a great show, but that's such an anomaly now. You know, um, it's such an anomaly in a in a society that, you know, and I, I uh, 
I, I mean, it is a very big nostalgia thing, but I think they had a story they wanted to tell and they're telling it. But I, I also think that so many things on Netflix, I can't watch. And people are like, you have to watch this. And I can't get into it. Yeah. I, have a huge, I have a huge problem with that too. And it's like, I'm watching old movies a lot of times because I can't stand what's out there. And it's like, you know, I, I people are like, try this show, try this show. You know, I think the, the biggest, the biggest one was the, uh, the show, the bear. Have you seen the bear? I tried one episode of the bear and the person that I get Hulu from has ads and every five minutes <laughs> there was ads. And I just, I couldn't, I literally, this is a terrible pun, but I couldn't bear it. After yeah. like, I got through one episode and it took me like 40 minutes, even though it's a 20 minute episode. And right. I was like, I don't, I don't, you know, there's a guy on my bowling team who was like, oh, the bear is so good. And you need to watch the second season apparently has a one episode that's like so amazing. And I'm like, I just, no, I, I couldn't bear it. So you couldn't bear yeah. it either. Uh, well, the thing is, I watched both seasons. I did. And I, but I did it. I, I had to do it while I was doing other things because I, oh couldn't. boy. Yeah, I just a background I, I, show. I call that a background show. Yeah, it's a back. It wasn't even a good background show. Like sucks, Riverdale. Right? Riverdale is a great background show. That was a great background. I mean, it mm. used to be. The thing is, you watch the first episode of Riverdale, and it's definitely not a background show. You're like, oh god, this is actually interesting. You know, you can figure out where things are going. It was so well directed, and all these things. Then all of a sudden, it turns it, the quality goes into such a background yeah. show. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and that's how I felt about the bear. It's that like, happened like, to that the Flash too. By season ten of the, the Flash. Flash. I was oh like, this God. is unwatchable. Please end unwatchable. it. Yeah, unwatchable. I, I, I love the first two seasons of Flash. The it first like so, four seasons. The it's four seasons were good. Yeah, it's till the 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 original guy Crisis. left. Oh yeah, and the, again, Crisis. The showrunner. Yeah, oh, the original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, as soon as go, the original showrunner leaves, the shows are bad. Like Adam oh, Goldberg left the Goldbergs, and then it went. Yeah. Oh, I felt that way about Supernatural. I love the show Supernatural. The first five seasons. First five I seasons. Say, I think I made it through seven, and then I said, I'm done. I tried six. I couldn't get through no, it. No, I could. I stopped watching Supernatural unless they had a Scooby-Doo episode or a musical yep. episode. I watched all the special episodes, yep. but I, I stopped. I did watch the finale because, you know, nothing happened for six seasons, so I could. Well, nothing happened. That's the thing. But the first five seasons, when he ended that, it was, Eric Kripke had such a great plot. I'm like, just, just leave it there. It was so good after season five. I'm like, just leave it. You know, well, it's the same it's with good. Buffy. Buffy had five great seasons. Six and seven yeah. are good, but they're not as good as the first five. Exactly. And, you know, but that's the thing. They have one episode that carries them through. And that's how I felt about The Office. Office had five really great seasons. Uh, well, once Steve Carell left the show, once he left, Don, that I was it. That the point. show yeah. got lost its chemistry. But you're not going to have that problem anymore. There are no shows going to be running yeah. that. Uh, there was an article on TVLine.com, and there's no shows that are going to yeah. be 10 seasons anymore. Like The Blacklist and Belt the Flash were probably the last ones. Yeah, I think it's always starting in Philadelphia is another one, too. That was last oh, that's year. true. Uh, that's still going, but it's not great going. anymore. It's not. I think even that loss is kind of like it's it's appeal. Well, they had Brian Cranston and uh, Aaron Paul on, and it was a really funny episode. And I was like, "Wow, this show is good for this one episode again." Yeah, but I much it. prefer Mythic Quest now. Oh, it's a good show. Yeah, I think I think that season three kind of lost me a bit, um, but I love the first two seasons of that. I just you know again, but 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 that's what happens. I think what ends up happening is that they look at the money people look at it as a steady stream of income, or, or they did. But if for storytelling purposes, it doesn't hold anymore. I mean, that's that's really the, the, the case. If It's like any sort of play you're doing. If you're doing the same cast and doing the same rotation for five, six years, doing the same stuff, you know, re, or just trying to do something new, you guys have a bubble that makes it that makes it beautiful. But leave it at that beautiful moment and then move on. Yeah. You know? I, I just think that so many shows do that. Um, they just don't have that beautiful. They they take they say we need we need more beautiful moments. We, we don't even care about beautiful moments anymore. We have cash flow. It's like you just chat on all just do something else, you know. Um, that's that's kind of why I go for movies so much now more because I'm watching it it's so contained, and I can't. I literally have if you if you were to tell me actually I'll tell you one show I do like every and I, and I know they'll probably end it soon, but it's so good. Uh, the Righteous Gemstones. Oh, Love that's that a great show. I love that, that show. It's still only in its third season, though. So they, right, right. they have a little bit of time before it gets to I five or six. Have, yeah, I think they have two, maybe one, two seasons left in them. 
that would be, but I, I love, I love Danny McBride and what he does. I think. He, oh yeah. I think, I think that show is fantastic, but you're talking about movies. You're, you're not talking about movies that are sequels and universes on their own. You mean right, like, right. you watch a lot of old movies, you keep posting and then right. I'm like, Oh, I haven't even heard of this. Right. Well, that's what I'm, what I've been doing is, is focusing on directors recently, like, like in the last two years and stuff. Cause I, what I like to do is like, I love, like for instance, I love Francis Ford Coppola. I love a lot of his right. films. I had never seen all of Coppola's films. And I was like, why, what am I missing? I'm missing the rain people. Why did I miss the rain people? It's such a great film, you know? And so I wanted to see those and revisit the ones I do like, you know, and it's kind of, I'm not sure that I've seen any of his films, to be honest. You never seen the Godfather? No, I haven't seen that one. You ever seen the conversation? Nope. Have you seen apocalypse now? Uh, I might've watched apocalypse now in high school, but I, I hated it. I hate that book and I hate the movie. How about Jack with Robin Williams? No, I haven't seen that. <laughs> he did that too. Um, yeah, you might not have seen, but but Coppola, if you get an, a good Coppola film, it's brilliant. Like the conversation is one of the best movies ever made, but it's it's Gene Hackman at his best. But you watch these films and you're like, wow, he's done other things besides The Godfather. Um, the one I the one I like, like then I started looking at Robert Altman. Robert Altman, all I know knew him from was like the player and like um shortcuts. I, I like shortcuts. But then I went through seventies films, and you're like, "Wow, the long goodbye! Oh my god, it's such a fucking great movie." Excuse my language, it's such a great movie. You can say "fuck" on the podcast. We're not it's rated. Such a fucking great movie. I haven't seen watch. the long goodbye either. Unbelievable. And then McCabe and Mrs. Miller. These are, are classic films. Why did I miss them? And I wanted to, you know, even like William, I just finished a William Freakin recently, uh, and I always wanted to see William Freakin's movies. And I love some of the stuff I've seen, um, like The French Connection, some other things. But I'm like, God, I should really kind of knuckle down and see this guy, this guy, what this guy's done. The the two ones I'm waiting on right now, I, I'm just finishing up uh, tonight. I'll be finishing up um, uh, Gareth Edwards, who did um, who this is a small one. It's like um, he did Star Wars Rogue One, something in the middle of. Uh, and he just he also did the Godzilla remake, but he's coming up with a new movie next month, The Creator, which absolutely looks phenomenal. It looks perfect science fiction. And so I'm excited to see those things. I like to see like what's how they develop. What did it, what themes do they use from film to film? And you start to see like even like William Friedkin, who does all these different genres um, in his films. He he's he's done so many things, but he's all over the map. But he has themes that go into each one, and I love that. I love looking for those, and I like seeing how they turn them turn their stuff in on themselves, basically. Um, the two ones I'm waiting for to kind of finish up is uh, Carl Frank, Fra- uh, Carl Franklin. Carl Franklin is an amazing director who did one false move. He's unbelievable. And the other one I'm looking to do is, um, oh God, uh, Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader is the writer of Taxi Driver, but he, uh, pack of uh, Taxi Driver, but he's such a great filmmaker too that he's somebody I do want to get into and kind of like, you know, kind of dig apart his films. Where do you but get the movies from? Do you rent them or you get them out of the that's library? That's part of the fun, actually. So this, so a lot of times you can't find these classic films. They don't exist copies anymore. Like you can't find them even on YouTube. So you have to track through the internet and find these films. I think the most, um, there was a film, uh, the only one that was really tough recently to find was when I was doing John Frankenheimer. John Frankenheimer is an unbelievable director, Manchurian Candidate, uh, Seconds, just an incredible filmmaker. Ronin, if you haven't seen Ronin, it's amazing. I haven't and seen he, any of those, no. Unbelievable filmmaker. He um he he's just he he did films in, after he did uh, Seconds with Rock with uh, Rock Hudson, one of the best movies ever made. He went to England to shoot all these like, kind of English films. And I think it was called Love Story or um, Story of a Love Story. That was what it was. Oh, yes, quite, quite. This uh, is my British accent, yes. It's one of the hardest films I ever found, but I found it in Israel, of all places. It's the one who made copies. Have you tried the library? The library has a lot of these things. These things don't exist on DVD. That's the problem. Oh, wow. They've never even existed. So there's a lot of, this is a story about film now. And film does last forever, sure. But there are films, even as far as like 10 years ago, they are not making anymore. Do you get them on VHS tape? I get them I get them transferred from VHS tapes to DVDs or have somebody who does that and try to find copies or off of like some people. I think there's some movies I've, I have found where people taped them off of uh, TV back in the 80s 
and you just transfer it to DVD off a VHS tape that they transfer. It's the only right. copy of it that exists. It's fascinating to me to find these things. Um, another one that was very hard to find was a guy named Adam Wingard. He directed, he actually directed Godzilla vs. Kong or Kong vs. Godzilla, whoever fought who. Uh, and he also did a movie like Death Note and he did um, The Guest and all these things. He directed a movie uh, in 2009 for $2,000. It was, he did, a, he did it all on like a camera, just, you know, and it's brilliant. It's actually a brilliant film. Uh, and it's a horror film called Pop Skull. Uh, if you've never seen Pop Skull, it is the hardest film you can probably find. Copies online, if you if you can find them, you'll be looking at like $300 just to find them. Found the copy, and I was very excited to get this film. And it's sitting in the next, in the next room. It's unbelievable. But it's about the trying to find something that people don't normally get to, you know, or get to see. It's unbelievable to me. I just feel like I don't watch enough films now, but I'm sure you can't name every single Sondheim musical. So, can't. <laughs> so there's can the trade-off. A little night music. There's a that's a film. Have you seen the film of that one? I have not. No, no, no. That, it's Elizabeth phone. Taylor. It's it's not great, but I do have yeah. it on VHS. Oh wow! But there is yeah, I love. But I, I and believe it or not, I tell people this all the time. I love writing for the theater. I hate watching plays. A lot of times, I hate watching them because I can't stand anything past hour two. Hour two, it's like God, get me the frig out of here at this point, you know. It is, it's it's almost torturous to me to watch a play at times. Well, it depends how long of them. The, the Tracy Letts sometimes has three-hour ones, and Eugene right. O'Neill is four hours. But a lot of the off-Broadway these days are 90 minutes, yeah, like 100. You have to keep it at that, I think. I've done stuff off-Broadway, off, off and I've, I've actually done one off-Broadway. Should never, if you're doing a play, especially a straight play, Never more than 100 minutes. If that that or 105 with music is fine, and I think it's a very good spot, a sweet spot to be. But I I, I tell people where like, oh, I'm doing these three hour things. I'm like, nobody wants to see it. Well, nobody wants to see it. Last that long? Yeah. Well, nobody wants to see it unless it has a star. I mean, let's be honest, right? Somebody. Oh, who's like I mean, party. commercially, yes. No one wants to see anything without a star commercially. Right, but even like, if you want to attract a, a new play. It's about the play and about the work and what that means. I'm not, I've actually made a conscious choice not to write anything past 100 minutes unless it needs it. The show I did in the spring needed a three X, but I needed to be that. But generally speaking, 90 minutes or 100 minutes or so. Well, that's about contact, content dictating form, which is what Sondheim's yeah. mantra was. Right. I'm looking but, forward to his new show, even though, you know, he didn't really quote unquote finish it. But I read this really long article uh, interviewing uh, Joe Mantello and uh, David Ives. And the concept of the show is based on the Bunel films. Do you know, Bu do you know oh, Bunel I know. at yeah. all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep, absolutely. I don't I mean, know. The, I haven't seen the films. One is The Exterminating Angel. Yeah. And the other one is something else. Something yeah. about how there's no there's no music in the film at all. And so that's why Steve was having trouble making it a musical and then they decided to just have snippets of like spoken lyrics instead and i guess they have enough of what steve was toying with that they said they haven't changed anything that he wrote they just kind of fiddled with the direction and the and the the book that david ives has been uh, so we'll see how it is uh, i paid uh, a lot of money to see it in October, and uh, I'm excited to see Sondheim's final musical. Yeah, but David Ives, though, dude, oh, you don't like him? <laughs> I've tried. I tried Venus and Fur. People are like try Venus and Fur, and I'm like, oh. Which playwrights do you like? You know, honestly, I love. You know, I love. I love. Um, if you're looking for like scripts that are really like classic and good. My favorite play of all time, and I always say this, and people laugh at me, like, how basic? And I'm like, well, it's great. Is Neil Simon's Neil Simon, Barefoot in the Park, is perfect. Oh, I, I love Barefoot perfect, in the Park. I did a scene a, from that in my acting class a few years it's, ago. It's a perfect script. And I think that is an example of a perfect script. Now, some Neil Simon kind of wavers for me. Um, but well, some of I it is kind of dated, because the kind of humor right. he wrote with is no longer, you know, Jerry Bear, bear, barefoot in the park is I feel, I feel like his is his timeless work i you know and yeah a couple's funny and everything like that and of course easy and laughs and everything like that but uh they go down easy but i really thought barefoot in the park is is a example of a of a perfect script 
Um, I actually really like Nikki Silver. Actually, I love Nikki Silver. Um, you know, I love, I love. I mean, he, I'm not sure if he's really writing anymore, but Rick, uh, Nikki Silver is somebody who was a, as a playwright, Fat Men in Skirts, really kind of took the what what he did and really just put it out there. I love that. He just went for it. Um, I love David Rabe. I think David Rabe is a spectacular mm-hmm. writer. Um, you know, and there were, I mean, there were times I was just reading like play, but I. This, the sad thing is, I. Uh, I, I think the thing is that Broadway's become so commercial and so commercial minded that all we're doing is either doing big name playwrights, like really big name playwrights, or we're doing revivals of other things with stars. And it's not any sort of script that, that besides a musical that is really kind of broken out for me. Well, I think that you need to go to more off Broadway because I've seen a plethora of off Broadway shows every week. And I find that those plays are a lot less quote-unquote commercial than broadway right i think i think the issue is is that i where i am in rhode island i mean i'm not seeing a lot of um i'm not seeing a lot of original plays going on so i get not to say i'm the scars or anything like that i think that you're living in the wrong place because here in new york there's (laughs) there's a lot of great plays i saw great plays in edinburgh i'm i'm going to chicago in a few weeks they have a lot of stuff there london I, i think that maybe that Providence is not known for a lot of new theater. I think we used to be maybe a little bit more, but mm-hmm. now we're now we're, I think you know I am, you might be right on that too. I mean, there's I, a I, lot of really great stuff off Broadway. I really? I had a show off Broadway personally, but mm-hmm. not only that, I'm seeing the new Annie Baker play this week. And oh, I'm, nice. Annie Baker is very good. He's yeah, always like phenomenal. So I'm really excited for that one. I agree. You know, I can agree. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, it's certain. I, I'm I'm just waiting for something to break out. I think the I think the issue for me is that I think in the I I'm not sure we even see stuff in New York anymore. It used to be when I used to do stuff in New York, it used to be a lot more independent off off Broadway stuff, and I'm not seeing it so much anymore. I feel like the pandemic kind of that's the a lot pandemic of that out. and a money issue. There the mo- also a lot of the small theaters closed. Right, so right. We're that's doing an, yeah, we're doing an off off Broadway run of the Diamond as big as the Ritz, and we had like three choices for theaters, maybe four. And two right. of them were so expensive. It was like, holy shit, really? Are you kidding me? And right. even the even like the ones the one we chose is it, it's it's you know it's it's more than I think that it it should be for what it is. And I think that's that is probably the biggest reason you're seeing less indie theater. Yeah, I think it's, I, I feel sad. I know the pandemic wiped a lot of them out, but it used to be a time even. When I was doing shows in 2019, it was so wonderful um, because at that point, because this is like, like four years ago, um, you know, we could you could just literally you, you had your option as places where you'd be like, OK, am I doing it here? Or am I doing it here? And now it's kind of like, OK, now it's kind of a special event if it's ever going to happen. And I don't know that I'll ever return to the, have that indie kind of feeling back in New York City. I'm hoping it does. But a lot of those things are just kind of gone now. You know, and I feel like. You know, one of my, you know, um, you know, I was talking, I was talking to somebody, I was talking to somebody about, about that, like, well, when are you going to come back to New York? And I'm like, do a show. And I'm like, well, I have to finish up my film first. That's very important. But when I do, it cannot just be like, oh, I'm taking actors anymore. It has to be an event. Like, I have to, I have to, to actually get people down there. I have to turn it into an event to make it. I didn't have to, before I could just put up a show. And it was an event, sure. But this is an event to get people down there. Like, when we did the Batman show. That was an event to get people down there, and it was, it was a lot, you know, to even get to that point. And I'll, I can, I know what it takes to get there. Well, I think you that, just but... have a lot of friends who don't live in the city anymore, because I still That's... have a lot of friends who do. So yeah, to me, yeah. it's not an event to get people here, because we all live here still. Right, right, right. It's well, even not, it's not that. I think what it, I think what it is, even so, was like not doing shows for three years. A lot of my friends tapped out, you know. And they were like, well, they got either... very used to watching things on their computers and That's not leaving their home. And all those people who work in offices now they're working at home. They don't even come into Manhattan. And if they live in New Jersey or Connecticut or Long Island, they're not going to come see theater after working from home. They're already home. What? Right. So it's really destroyed theater. It's it's been terrible. And you know, Midtown has. Six billion dollar loss, an annual loss, because people aren't coming to their offices. And 
I mean, I understand that. I don't have an office. I never have had an office. I would never have a job that required me to go to an office. But I feel like a lot of people who work in offices got a taste of the freedom I've always had. And they don't want to give it back, which is understandable. But it also sucks because theater is really having a very hard time. And especially, you're right, on Broadway, there are hardly any new plays that are not through the nonprofits. And the nonprofits can't even sell that well. They are they are relying more and more heavily on grants. And I don't think when you have the companies that are the big companies relying heavily on grants, that's fewer grants for the smaller companies. Right. And so you you have to do all that fundraising yourself. And as someone who just fundraised $30,000 for a film that you co-wrote with me right. about my grandmother's Holocaust experience, uh, it was fucking hard. And crowdfunding was demeaning and it was emotionally draining. And I yep. mean, you you kept texting me. You kept being like, keep doing it. You're doing great. You're doing great. And I appreciate it. It was hard. It's still it's still hard. Like honestly, it's way um, harder post pandemic than it used to be because people right. are paying for their gas and they don't have as much money to, to to spend on the arts. When when we did the the so I'm directing I'm directing the film The Haunted and the Hunted and it's taken me like two years to film. Yeah, it. see, I got us and, back on topic. Yeah, yeah, and the reason well you did you did a good job. The reason why uh, it's taken me so long and right crowdfunding, you're right, it is demeaning in so many regards, and. The thing is, I don't actually. The thing I, I told my my crew is that I don't have enough money right now to finish up the film, and the, but it's going to get finished. And I'm telling you how I have to do it in pieces when I do have money, when I do make some money writing something or doing something or doing a project for somebody, and so I'm going slow because I have a choice of finishing the film, which I could just finish the film and just get it done with, but it won't be anything close to being decent. Um, or I can take this extra time, raise the money that we need to raise. I'm not going back to crowdfunding because I already did the crowdfunding once. You can't go back once you do it. Yeah, that's um, true. That's it. It's a one-time yeah, deal, which is why, one- I, why I raised yeah. so much the first time. Right, right. And, but I, I, I knew I knew this would be the case too. And I told them that when we first when we got when we got what we did, I said, I don't think I have enough, but we have to shoot because this is a full length um you know monster. And it's like, so but we I have a plan and we're actually about eight to 11 days left to film. That's all we have left. And I, I have enough for the next six, six times to film. I By the end of the year, I'll have all, if I have to do 11, I'll have all 11 to film, I'll have the money raised for that, not going back to crowdfunding. And then I have a plan to to do post-production. So it's going to probably take another year to 18 months to finish up the film, but I am doing it slow because I don't want to rush the process of it. Well, and, I feel like that's know, something that comes with age, the the right. acceptance to do it slower. And yeah. I used to have this huge fire under me and this ambition. And right. I was like, when my sitcom pilot, I couldn't get that up. And I was like, I, I rushed it to get it done. And I that's one of my career regrets is maybe I should have taken an extra year to polish it right. up just a little cool. bit more, you know? I My revising process, we talk about the Batman show. I had originally done the Batman show, the Bill Finger show, back in 2015. I had to do it because my theater partner said, we got to get this done. We're opening up a new theater, and we have to we have to get this, something good. So I rushed it. So I rushed the script, and I wrote it in six weeks. And the fact that I wrote a script in six weeks literally tore me apart. And I didn't – and I couldn't have time to re- reevaluate it and actually reassess and re- revise it. Um, I'm big on the revising process in a sense that – um, you know, we, you have to revise things to make it work for things. You have to revise stuff. A lot of times we step away from it and go back to it. I agree. Um, it's good to have you know, like six months off of something. Right. And I, and I couldn't, but, but something that was so big as the, as the Bill Finger Batman story, doing something like that, it actually took me to write that script another five years, which is not, not always the case, but and actually, I, I think at the end of the day, and this is true. Uh, I think eventually I got hired to write it as a screenplay and it went back and forth. And I think when I ended up the script, I think I, it was version 2,338. I think is what we ended up at. That's amazing. Well, of course it was, was at 28, but 2,038. Yeah. Wow. Well, I had so many, well, I, the first script I saw, I hated so much. And I had about maybe about five versions of it, maybe. And I'm like, this is nowhere near what I want it to be. And I just kept chipping away at it. Then, then it became a screenplay, moved it back, did this. 
Um, and, I, and sometimes it would just be something like changing a sentence. Sometimes I'd be changing a whole scene and I'd update it. And I'd be like, I just want to see how many drafts of this I can actually get done. 2,338 drafts of it. And I'm happy with what we have now. Well, if you're counting a draft yeah. that you changed one line, then that's a little cheap accounted. You, how many well, changes do you need to have it well, make it a new draft? When I, when I say cheap, when I say cheap, I mean, I, I don't know what you can call it cheap, though, if it changes the intention of the entire thing. But some of those lines I literally thought about and thought about and thought about and thought about. I'm not saying you shouldn't about. change them. I'm saying yeah. if you change one line and you're like, oh, yeah. it's a new draft and I put another period. Now it's a new draft. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it depends on the intention. But what I do is when I, when I change a draft, I have to adjust other things. So I'd be switching scenes around sometimes. It was it was a rough. I mean, different versions I should, probably should have said. But I probably did actually go in there about that much. I'd always be looking at it on a daily basis, being like, what can I fix? What can I fix? You know, chipping well, away. A lot of it. that happens in the rehearsal room, too, because you you hear someone say a lyric and you're like, oh, fuck, that, that X and that S together doesn't work because it sounds like the words are alighting in some strange way. Or someone goes, I don't know what this word means. And you're like, oh, shit, I'm, I, I have a bad habit of, writing my characters too smart because I have such an erudite lexicon yeah. that yeah. I, I forget that sometimes I need to dumb it down. Right. I actually, believe it or not, in my 20... That's just like a humble yeah. brag. Yeah, my and probably, and this is not a humble brag, and I understand that too. I actually don't change, I actually don't change a lot of my um, stuff when I'm in the rehearsal room. Sometimes I'll let some people improv stuff, sometimes I'll let them go through stuff, but I generally don't change much, believe, believe it or not. Because I get to I get it to a point where I don't have to. Like I know I worked out some stuff. Now, some now stuff that's I a humble brag. No, it's, it's, I mean it's just it's just I'm so used to doing. I know generally, and this I'm doing a play right now. Pussy Hanukkah comes to Harlem, and it was maybe two things I needed to change as far as well. Well, maybe a couple things I needed to change as far as like oh I put the wrong word there, or I did something, or I, I didn't put this. I put the instead of and or something like that. But generally, but they get the point. They get the gist of things. Generally speaking, I think there's only two parts where I actually I kind of did a small little tweak on, but everything else is as is. The reason that is is why I do that is because I generally work on what is. I, I don't. I hate wasting time as a director because I love being. I love directing too, but I I actually like directing less than I do playwriting. So right. you know, you get in there. It's like sometimes you know actors just you know to come in. They're like you know I don't want anyone to think about anything. I want the work to be done and ready to go. That's very and, Stephen Sondheim. time. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, not that I want to, I just want to get to the real stuff. I know exactly what we need to get to. And if some, and I need it, the thing is, I have to justify every line as a writer. So when you're writing, I justify everything. So if I, I have an actor, if I, I predict actors' questions. So when he asks me the question, I'm just like, okay, this is what this means. And sometimes, most of the time, I see 99% of the time you get an actor is just like, you know, I get that thing. And I have to boil it down for them or, or say it in a language that they understand. But sometimes every so often you get somebody who's like, well, I I I don't think I've ever had, except maybe twice, said had, had a an actor say to me, "Well, my character wouldn't say that." And once I can honestly say, there was just a defiant actor who was just like, "I need," you know, wanted to say that my character wouldn't say that this line. Once I sat there and I'm like, "Oh, he's actually right. His character would not say that. It feels wrong." And so I had I did an adjustment on that, but I generally don't change things very much uh, from intentions once I get going. I, I know prefer having actors tell me. I I like really? to know. Yes, and I had. Oh, I mean, there yeah. are multiple times in the Love Quirks process, especially because a lot of those songs pre-existed, that actors would be like, "I don't think this is right," and the director would be like, "So I like having a lot of people there who I trust." That they're right. all there for the right. same thing, and I like right. that collaborative process oh, because I, I can't get out of my own yeah. head sometimes. Right, I get out of my own head. I I have people read it beforehand, and if they tell me something like this or this and this, so a lot of times I'll have people even tell me too. And let's put it this way: you know when you know when you say to yourself you're ready to fight for those things and be like, this is what I have to fight for. Every line in the script that I have now, I'd say except for the things I changed, every line I can sit there and, and fight for those lines and have a very good argument that why those lines exist as they do. Well, I think that's I can, very important to have. I I have I have every single line I can justify to what's going on for anything I write because I just don't I don't not that I don't want to be fighting. I want to be moving on to other things at that point. But that being said though, I will tell you, 
doing you do musical theater and musical theater is very different yes um, it is completely different it's, is what i'm hearing i i direct so i directed a musical uh, instead of a severed head i wrote the book and somebody else wrote the lyrics um and um you know he wrote he wrote wrote the songs he wrote 22 songs and i had to explain to him you know i'm only using eight you know and which is probably the biggest nightmare of anyone who's doing music saying someone's having cutting of uh, two-thirds of your songs but it didn't serve the story correctly you know and i had to change lyrics I, I used some lyrics from the other songs in different places but it didn't it wasn't working it just wasn't working in that and then that point i'm like i literally had to because it just, how did the composer take it not well <laughs> i was gonna say guy i, I yeah. prefer having all that mapped out before i start writing i yeah. can't stand over writing i, I yeah, well, it's not efficient in my mind that being that being said though that being said when we got it together it came out beautifully and he did a great job i mean like as far as things go and i told him what we were doing and i think at the end he understood um, you know, especially when the reviews started coming in, he's like, this is good. I'm like, yes, because we had to, we have to tell the story we have to tell. And you definitely have to tell the story, but there's something to be said for outlining it. And of yeah. course there'll be changes, but the more you can get the story to work before you start the writing, the less you have to do the rewriting. Right, right, right. And that's I rewrite all the time, but I prefer when I don't have to. It never right, happens right. except for my mm -hmm. children's musical. But, you know, that was easier because it's a children's yeah. musical. Well, what are your career goals for the future? My career goals is to get as much sleep as possible. That's a good goal. And what advice do you have for aspiring filmmakers? Same sure. advice? Get some sleep? Uh, same advice. <laughs> yeah, I think that, well, to give to give to give like the two best things I could probably say about that. I'll give the answer for this. I'll be for aspiring filmmakers. Um, my things I like to say, and it's to make us very quick, is that for myself, I believe it I, when I hear it. No, no, I I want to. I don't care about. I don't care about being famous, but I care about telling the stories that I want to tell in the way that I want to tell them, and I just want to tell stories as much as I can. I don't know how much. I don't know how much. Some I'm forty. Somebody forty seven next year. I don't know how much. You're older than I am. Wow. I, I you know the train eventually will will stop, the train is going to stop eventually. You know I'm, I mean I'm, I'm I told myself when I turn sixty, I might just give up. You know doing whatever I'm doing and see the world, um, which is a good goal. Um, but I don't know, man. Eventually the train's going to stop. I mean at some point, I, when I don't when I told all the stories that I have to tell because I've been doing honestly two to three shows a year, playwright wise, directing and all those things, since I was like. 20 years old you know i mean this is like right. 27th year of doing this so i mean i've had some amazing experiences and amazing things have happened all these you know all these phenomenal things i don't think i'll ever stop writing but i do think at a certain point i'll be like okay i really need to step back it could be next year it could be my next play you know i, I have a play in the spring but at some point i'm gonna have to stop and say you know what i've done enough and it's i've done enough for myself and i need to i ain't him that's it exactly diana exactly right and it's kind of like say that's it that's all i got um i for aspiring filmmakers who are young this is what i would tell you is aspiring writing at anything just fucking do it just that's goes for any age just fucking do it just tell us tell me a story don't wait for someone to come along and produce your script produce it find I a way agree. i you fucking know, produce fucking everything myself too fucking do it man because otherwise what ends up happening you sit your entire life waiting for your one script to get done and saying, I can do this, I can do this. And maybe someone will come along or go into production maybe or something like that and they take it away from you or they like it never gets to wherever it goes or you win a contest. Contests are bullshit as far as my concern. Yeah, don't I don't apply for those. Don't apply for, why? What's the point? There's no, no point. point. Just fucking produce it yourself. Do it I think because we're, we're in agreement. That's why we're friends. That, that's it, man. So what if you don't, if you don't, if you don't, you'll spend your entire life either making somebody else's dreams come true in, in, in the theater field, or you have wasted years where you could have been producing that that film or script, learning from that, and then doing your next film that you wanted to do and hoping to do. Well, I just want to say that was not a quick answer, and I was right when I <laughs> called bullshit when you said it was going to be quick. But that's fine, because it. it's, it's a podcast. We don't have a, a time slot. We're not like, Oh my God, we must be exactly 43 minutes and right. 10 seconds. Right. So it's so it's cool. 
but I completely agree that you have to do it yourself. And, you know, I will say you don't have to go all and then nothing. You can actually take a year off and then, you know, write a play again. Right. And learn from your experiences. The only way to learn and to do better is to do it and then learn from that, assess that, rewrite yourself and do that, you know, and do the next one or do that play you just did and redo it. Well, it's nice to revisit them sometimes, you know, we took breaks with Love Quirks like three years off and then we came back and we saw this new stuff we could do with this, with the piece. It's important. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent, man. Everything takes a lot of fucking time. You know, the idea for me to work on Malka to somehow musicalize my grandmother's story, I've had that since high school. So it's been over two decades and a lot of different collaborators. Uh, and I think I finally got the team and I, I hopefully, I, hopefully we will make it happen this soon. Oh, it's going to happen. It's, it's yeah, going to happen. It's, yep. it's going to happen. <laughs> happen this time. All right. Well, I think we've been talking for almost an hour. So I think yeah. we need to get to our closing questions, Lenny. Yeah, uh, so what is a time a millennial annoyed you? Oh, God, every day. Thank you. I have people who are younger than you. And they won't even answer the question. I, I just, I, you know, it's, it's so weird when I look at millennials who just don't appreciate what the advances the world has made for them. Mm-hmm. And they sit around and they're lazy about it. And I just, it's awful. It's awful to watch. Anyway. <laughs> so, I completely agree. This is great. I, I got to yep. just stick to people older than me. Uh, so That's what it. advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? 10 years ago? We're 20 I, since you're so old. 30 even. <laughs> 30 years ago? I would tell you this. Don't change a thing. I would not change a damn thing. That's a very, uh, it's like the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Tapestry. Do you know that show? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like if you change one little thing, the butterfly affects your whole life, and you no yeah, longer will I, be where you are. There is nothing I would change, honestly. I I would not change a thing creatively. You know, anything, even to get more famous, I wouldn't do it. And, you know, this is the, I'm living the best life. I I mean, that you could possibly have anyone. I'm so lucky. Um, Even with all the work that happens in my life, I'm so lucky with all the people I know. I mean, I, I post on Facebook that I'm lucky every, like every so often. I actually believe that I'm so fortunate to be doing any of this. And there's so many experiences over the last 20, 30, my whole life has been, there's been tragedy, there's been stuff, but everything has been just, if, if if I was gonna hit by a bus tonight and leave this podcast and hit by a bus, which I hope I don't, um, I will say that it's been everything's been worth it. It's been perfect. It's the way I want it. Well, I'm so lucky to have you on my podcast and as my <laughs> friend. And I <laughs> thank you so much. This has been I, I knew when you were on I wouldn't have any trouble filling the time. <laughs> no, but not at all. I feel like we can do this for three more hours. Anyway. We definitely could, but I feel like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I like people. People, as you say, after an hour of a podcast, people are like, okay, I'm ready to move on to the to something else. Exactly, man. Well, thank you for having me on. I'll be texting you. This has been great. Have me on again if you want to. I'll do season 10 when you get to it. Well, uh, we'll <laughs> see if I if I get renewed, but we'll we'll see. <laughs> this season Absolutely. has been has been super fun though. Uh so thank you everyone for tuning in. I hope you okay. enjoyed this episode. Uh, I hope you tune back in. Please like and subscribe. Uh, or whatever I'm supposed to say at that point. My nephew knows this. Like, my nephew did a puppet show for us, and at the end he said, don't forget to like and subscribe. And I was like, oh, that's what I should be saying at the end of my podcast. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for (laughs) reminding me. Uh, So, yes, please tune in next week. Uh, Next week I have my friend Amara Nogi on, and we discussed doodles. She's a professional uh, graphic designer who has a doodle shop, and it's a fantastic discussion it's very uh it, it's funny all these creative discussions even though we're all in different uh media it's very similar the process i think that's amazing well th- thank you and thank you for having me on before i leave pussy hanukkah comes to harlem opens up september 14th and it goes through the 23rd in winsaka Rhode island uh 8 p.m uh beacon charter school for the arts www.ri.org uh if you're in pennsylvania johnstown october 1st at one o'clock we have the ditko show Come on down to either one of them. They're they're fun. They're 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 inexpensive, and the 
Dicko is family oriented. Pussy Hanukkah is not. Thank you so much. <laughs> got it. You, you got some Dicko. You got some pussy. And then your other play about fingering. So it all, right. <laughs> it all comes full circle. All That's right. Great, well, right? <laughs> I hope you guys will tune in next week. Uh, so you'll hear me next time right here on Millennials Are Ruining the World, question mark, an extennial perspective, real conversations bridging the gap between generations X and Y. I'm not woke, but I'm awake. Millennials are ruining the world, an exennial perspective.